the biblical view of masculinity is that you roll up your sleeves and you invest more deeply in your family and in the social institutions that grow out of it. You invest more deeply in doing productive work that is useful to your society, that is creative and productive. And that's where you find your meaning because that's the commission God gave us pre-fall. And that's where our understanding of masculinity should really be rooted. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Unless you've been living under a rock someplace, you know there's a lot of cultural foment recently about defining men and women, about the differences or similarities, the connection or lack of connection between sex and gender, and it goes on and on and on and on. It seems like you can't turn on the TV or open up any social media platform without getting sucked into these battles. And all too often, there's a not-so-subtle undercurrent. Men are the problem. Full stop. Masculinity itself is toxic, and the critiques aren't just coming from outside the church. Nancy Piercy begs to differ. Today, we are welcoming her back to talk about her new book, The Toxic War on Masculinity, which comes out next week. That's right, we're talking to her just as her new project releases. And it is going to be a doozy. Uh, In fact, I read it and I went, oh, this is going to be fun. Nancy calls it her most controversial book yet. And that's saying something considering she wrote a book called Love Thy Body, which was on, in some respect, transgenderism. But it may also be her most surprising and most thoroughly researched book yet, because her research largely comes from secular sources. This is what I thoroughly enjoy about this project. It's not skewed. Sources which show that much of the hand-wringing about Christianity and masculinity might not be as accurate as we are often told. I love talking about these subjects. I mean, seriously, going down, doing a deep dive into these things so that we might be able to equip you, so that you might be able to answer critics and skeptics alike, and you might find encouragement and strength in the word of God and what God is showing us by the power of his spirit. I love doing it because I love you. I love your heart. I love your desire for God. I love your desire to grow and see Jesus's name exalted and his church continue to expand as his kingdom expands around the world. I love that. I really do. Now, I hope that you love us too. I I do. I really hope that you do. I hope that we can create content that helps you. And we are in this together and we do need your help. Not only do we want you to share this show, to pray for our ministry and comment on the things that stood out to you, but we do need your financial support in whatever amount you want to give. And if you've given already, thank you. Really, we couldn't do this without you and we continue to grow and more people start to get the vision that God has laid forth for each one of us to see the church renewed around the world. 
And if you do want to partner with us, simply click the link in your show notes and thank you in advance for loving us so much. Now, let's get to my conversation with Nancy Piercy and the toxic war on masculinity. Happy listening. Nancy Piercy, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. It's glad to have you back. Yes. Yes. We've had a couple of chats. Yeah, we have. And I, I always thoroughly enjoy the conversation. I always thoroughly do. But are you ready for the fast five? Oh, the fast five. Oh, okay. On my, on my toes here. Okay, here we go. This is an easy one for you. Your preferred fashion choice in one word. Country. That's your preferred fashion choice is country? Yeah. What you have to describe that. I want some elaboration here. You have to elaborate on that. LL Bean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. I wouldn't put them as country. I used to live in the country. I grew up in the country in Indiana. We lived uh we, we owned five acres on a 15-acre plot of woods. And so to me, childhood is associated with being out in the out in the country, climbing trees, you know, w- waiting in the in the uh, creek. And I just love you know, outdoorsy country type. I thought you grew up in Minnesota. Oh, I was born there. I lived there for a year. <laughs> a oh, year. You from India. Where in Indiana are you from? So my dad taught at Purdue University. So we were just outside of West Lafayette. Okay. That makes a lot. That makes a lot of sense. It's a beautiful country there. That's some beautiful place. Oh, trees, trees. <laughs> oh yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, here we go. Number two, your most favorite vacation spot in the world. A forest, after what I just told you. <laughs> Does it matter where the forest is, though? No, is it like just redwood? Give just give you just trees. Give trees. Well, the, my childhood memories would be mostly deciduous trees because it's Indiana. So, yeah, it's, but any trees, frankly, I'll go for it. Mm, Indiana has some really beautiful trees, especially in southern Indiana, Nashville, with the covered bridges and all that there. It's oh, so nice, so beautiful. All right, number three. The book, the one book outside of the Bible that has most influenced your life and why? Oh, Francis Schaeffer. Um, and the, the, you know, his two main apologetics books, The God Who Was There and Escape From Reason, because that's how I became a Christian. So that was a huge influence on my life. I did become a Christian through a visit to Libri in Switzerland. Um, I was attending school in Germany at the time. And I... Through a series of complex circumstances, I ended up going to Libri in Switzerland. So by far, Francis Schaeffer has had the greatest influence on my life. And if you read my books, you'll see the influence there. <laughs> you know, I have a friend of mine who is a, at a publishing house who actually has his unpublished letters. And I got to read them. Oh, just fascinating. Did he really wear the britches? Did he really wear those things? Lederhosen. 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 <laughs> I have to say it. Lederhosen. I can't do the accent. I can't. I can't do it. Did he really wear that though? Of course. I mean, he he dressed like the locals. I mean, like Hudson Taylor did. Remember? That, yes. Taylor, well, I wasn't the, there, but <laughs> he pioneered the idea. But Hudson Taylor pioneered the idea that you should dress like the natives, and so Hudson Taylor, you know, dressed like Chinese and wore a long pigtail, and you know. And so uh, Francis Schaeffer looked like a Swiss farmer. It was a small farming village. Labrie was located in a small farming village high up in the Swiss Alps. And he dressed like the local farmers. So, what, yeah. made, what made him pick Switzerland? Oh, it, it was um, 
He went to Europe originally. Um, he was sent to Europe by uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship, and they wanted him to evaluate the state of the churches after World War II. Now, what do we do to help rebuild the churches? And so he traveled through Europe, brought back his report, and they said, we think you should do it. <laughs> and so they sent him to Europe and said, okay, it's yours. It's your job. And why it ended up Switzerland, I don't, I'm not quite sure, you know, fairly central location in Europe. Um, but that's how he ended up in Europe. And, um, and as you know, then eventually, uh, he, the, the ministry sort of organically grew into young people coming to his home and staying in his home and actually talking one on one for long periods. And, and another group of students, it, 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 uh, it transformed when his students, his own daughters got old enough to go down the mountain to Lausanne University. And they would talk to their friends about God and religion. And, and, uh, when their friends had questions, they would say, you should talk to my dad. <laughs> he's, he's good with questions like that. And so they would take the little train, you know, the little Alps, <laughs> there's little trains in the Alps. They'd go up the mountainside. And because it was so inaccessible, they would spend the whole weekend and then they would tell their friends and another group would come up the next weekend and they, they tell their friends. And that's how it organically grew into a place where you would come and actually stay for a while and you know, live with a Christian family. The way it grew was if another family or a couple said, you know, we like what you're doing, or maybe they even converted through Libri and then they would buy a home down the street, a chalet. People chalet sounds like a luxury home, but that's just what people live in. And this was helps. You know, farmers live in chalets. So, so they would buy a chalet down the street and they would open their home and someone else would join the ministry and open a chalet down the, down the street the other way. And so uh, it grew very naturally into a place where you live with a Christian family and you see Christianity lived out day by day, um, as opposed to, you know, going to a conference and seeing a talking head. You know, you actually got to see whether they lived it. You know, we got to see whether Schaefer actually lived you know, to walk the talk. Uh, so it was, that was what made it so powerful, I think, is that he wasn't just another talking head. He was somebody where you saw day by day, day in and day out, doing the chores side by side, <laughs> uh, you know, how authentic his faith really was. All right. Here's your next question, which I already think I know the answer of what you've said before, but your favorite leisurely activity besides reading? Playing my violin. Do you still play a lot? Yeah. Yeah. Do you really? Do you do any uh, concerts anywhere? No, no, what I do. Um, so my mother is a professional violinist. And so um, uh, every summer I go to visit her. And so I practice up so that we can play duets together. How old and is so your mom? Vivaldi duets and Bach duets, uh, Telemann duets. And so that's kind of the highlight of my year. I used to have a colleague here at Houston Christian who played and we played together. But um, now it's just once a year I get to play with my mom. <laughs> How old is your mother? 95. Oh my goodness. And she's still playing. She's still playing. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. I think it's what keeps her alive. I mean, you know, cause you know, the mental stimulation, you know, they say with older people, you should learn a language or play a musical instrument. So. Right. Right. No, I love that. I, the fact that she's still playing and she was a dream. Was that intimidating having a professional violinist as a mother? No, no. Um, it was, well, what it was. <laughs> What it was is, okay, there were six kids in the family. We all had to play an instrument. Oh. And actually what it was was more sort of 
punitive. I mean, it was like, you have to practice. My parents, my parents didn't know how to motivate us positively. And so they would motivate us in a very negative way. And I had to sort of overcome that when I became a young adult then, because I just had, I had very negative feelings toward my violin, mostly because of that very punitive approach to practicing. Um, so I had, I had to sort of get over that. And I did. Now, now I'm in love with it again. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're playing with your 95 year old mother. Okay. How about this one? This is the final question of the fast five, which has become the slow five. But <laughs> If you could be one song, what song yes. would you be and why? Well, the thing is, I don't listen to songs. I don't listen to popular music. If you mean popular not, no, not popular, anything classical, whatever you want to play, whatever song you want to be. During the pandemic, <laughs> see, this is this is the slow five. During the pandemic, <laughs> the Metropolitan Opera put their operas on to listen for free mm. every night, a different opera. And so I got like a course in opera <laughs> mm. and learned to love opera. And I suppose if I were to um, choose a favorite one, maybe maybe an aria from La Traviata by Verdi. That's probably Verdi's, Verdi's most popular opera. And it's got very beautiful uh, arias. So I still, now that, now that they no longer offer them from, for free, I can go online and still listen to individual arias. <laughs> so I listen to them still. So that's, that's what I'll go for, a Verdi aria. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Let's talk about your book. You have a new book, Nancy, and, and it's not out yet. It will be soon, right after we run this conversation. The Toxic War on Masculinity, How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes, produced by Baker, isn't it? Baker did it. Mm -hmm. And I was so delighted to read this book. But even the title, you said in the book, it's your most provocative or most controversial book. And in our world today, there's nothing more controversial then let's talk about gender and christianity and you you hit both so let's talk about this book what made you want to write and just delve right into the midst of this subject in the middle of a culture war in which we find ourselves yeah yeah um it is the most controversial book i've ever written which was a surprise because love thy body my last book dealt with abortion homosexuality transgenderism I really thought that would be the most controversial, but in the Christian world, this has proven to be more controversial. I, uh, the, this, the nutshell answer 
that we can unpack is that I saw a problem and I saw a solution. Um, <laughs> and the problem, of course, was that masculinity is being attacked so viciously. It's become culturally acceptable to be incredibly hostile to masculinity. Um, I, I was really shocked one day in the, when the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? Like, wait, you know, that used to be some fringe feminist group would talk like that, not a mainstream publication like the Washington Post. The Huffington Post had a an editor who said her New Year's resolution was kill all men. The, you can buy T-shirts that say so many men, so little ammunition. <laughs> and then there are books out with titles like Ugh. literally I hate men, no good men and are men necessary. So, and even men have jumped on the uh, bandwagon. You may have seen this. It's not in my book because it just came out. Um, but the director of the movie Avatar, James Cameron, mm-hmm. said testosterone is a, is a toxin that you have to work out of your system. Or a book author wrote, talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. So, no wonder... A major survey found that 46% of American men say that society punishes men basically just for being men. Mm. And and that was in the book. But there's a new one. Again, you know, as soon as you write your book, there's new new items. Right. A new one that was done in Britain just now uh, a couple of weeks ago. 55% of men, so more than half, say that discrimination against men is now worse than discrimination against women. So whether you agree or not, that is a lot of people who think the male bashing has gone too far. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to understand where is this coming from? You know, the, the way to stand effectively against a social trend is you really need to understand where it came from and how it developed. You know, you just can't take it at face value today. And so in, in the toxic one masculinity, I got sort of behind the scenes and look at how this concept developed over time. You know, kind of go up for the bird's eye view mm-hmm. so you can see it developing and then that way you understand it better and you and can counter it better. Well, you re- it reminded me as I was reading the book that it reminded me of Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the the uh, the, the Rise and the, the of Rise and Triumph of Modern Self, Modern <laughs> Self. Because what he did was chronicling how he got to this place of the sexual revolution. And and I and I saw that within your book as you were you were identifying toxic masculinity and even the fact that we're having this conversation or excuse me, the toxic war on masculinity. I want to make sure I get my terminology right there because I've seen so many books and so many Christian books. Now, as of late, it's gone to this side where so many women were being, or femininity was really pushed down within the church. And then you get the other side, which is all masculine and it's just stake all the time and men's ministry. And, uh, but it's more of a cultural understanding of, or even almost like a stereotype of what they think men should be. And you, you actually pull that out a bit in the book. So you, you, I, I like the fact that you rooted it early on in American history and how that we, we tried to have our early understandings of how masculinity formed. And it's different than what we see today. You actually mentioned that it was a very positive view. The husband and father had a very positive view in the family and people wrote about that. Yeah. So um, I I do start, I, I kind of limit myself to American history because otherwise the book would be too big. But it also gives me the opportunity to, in a sense, start with Christianity and not just in the abstract, but you can see how it was actually lived out in the colonial era because so many people were Christian at the time. And so the, 
social expectations of manhood were very much geared towards caretaking and responsibility. And it was easier to live it out because before the Industrial Revolution, families were together 24 hours a day, right? Uh, husbands are working with their wives all day. They're training their children. They're working side by side on the family farm, in the family industry, the family shop. And so fathers were intimately involved with their families. And so the concepts of masculinity were much more geared toward having responsibility for your family. And, and not only that, but a very common phrase at the time was that you also were supposed to be fathers of the community. You know, you're supposed to bring that fathering ethos out into the community. The definition of authority at that time had a very specific meaning. It meant who has responsibility for the common good. So, you know, each individual naturally looks out for their own good. I look out for what's good for me. You look out for what's good for you. But who looks out for the common good of the marriage, the family, the church, civil society, and so on? And that's what authority was for. It was, you know, the, the, the favorite word at the time was disinterested, meaning whoever was in authority did not look out, look out for his own self-interest. He looked out for the interests of the whole. So it was a very positive view of authority as well. How did we lose that? The turning point was the, the uh, industrial revolution because it meant two things. First of all, work was taken out of the home. So men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And for the first time, they were not working with their families, with people they loved and had a moral bond with. Instead, they were working as individuals in competition with other men. And you see, already in the 19th century, you see the rhetoric start to change as people protest that the men are changing, that men are losing that caretaking mentality. They're it, when they're working as individuals, you know, it looks, it feels a lot more like I have to look out for number one. Right? I have to be aggressive and ambitious and acquisitive and, you know, pushing myself forward in the struggle for survival. Um, and so people began to write about it. You know, men are kind of losing their ethical stance. Um, as one letter to the editor in a newspaper put it at the time, men are, uh, Men are selling their souls for mammon, you know, mammon for wealth. Um, and it said in, in the process, it said the American man is losing his soul. So that was the structural uh, changes that were going on. And then at the same time, American society was being secularized because after the Industrial Revolution, there arose a huge public sphere, you know, business, industry, factories, banks, financial institutions academia, universities, and the state. And people began to say, well, these big institutions should be run by scientific principles, by which they meant primarily value-free. And so, in other words, the language began to be, don't bring your private values into the public square, which is what we still hear today. And so men in particular then are being exposed to a secular education, working in a secular environment, and they begin to have a more secularized definition of masculinity. So it was, it was the two things. There was a structural change, and then there was the secularization. And between the two of them, we kind of lost the biblical understanding of masculinity. Well, 
even then you bring in the, the biblical aspect of it. And one of the things that I thought was very interesting, most people, when they critique today, they say Christian, let's even say white, we'll get into that, but you even delve outside of that. So it's not just white. You're looking at masculinity. You cite people in Chile and Brazil and South America and a culture that's really known for their masculinity. But what you've noted is that it's not actually conservative Christian men that are going to church that are the problem, that are the the ones that are guilty of abuse and divorce and toxic these toxic traits that are often brought out in the culture. You say it's an entirely different group. Now, who is that group that's causing doing that most of that abuse? Yeah. So I said, I I saw a problem and an answer. And this is the answer. The answer is most people don't realize that sociologically Christian men are testing out very well. Uh, It was, it's easy to find people saying that, you know, exhibit a of toxic masculinity is evangelical men. Let me read you a few of them just so you get a flavor of it. Conservative Protestant gender ideology can clearly lead to abuse, both physical and emotional. Another one. It's no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. A third one. The theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. Well, the problem with these accusations is that they ignore the data from the social sciences. Mm -hmm. Sociologists read these accusations and said, yeah, but where's the evidence? Where's your evidence? And so they started doing the studies. And it's only been in recent decades. So they're fairly new. And I had to go digging in the academic sociological journals to find them. And so that's another reason I wanted to write the book is to bring this out and make it public. But what sociologists have found is what you just said, that Christian men who attend church regularly, in other words, you know, really committed ones, Mm -hmm. are the most loving husbands and fathers. So uh, they, and they do, by the way, they do interview the wives separately. So what they're reporting is that the wives say that they're the happiest with their husband's expressions of love and appreciation. Evangelical fathers also test out as the most engaged with their children uh, both in shared activities like sports and church youth group and in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time um, or bedtime. The evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce. And the real stunner, they have the lowest rates of domestic violence of any group in America. So uh, Christians don't know this. I, you know, I talked uh, when I give lectures at Christian universities and seminaries. We don't know this. Uh, my my sort of go to sociologist, the one who did the largest study um, is Brad Wilcox at the University mm-hmm. of Virginia. And he here's, listen to what he wrote in The New York Times of all places. Uh, he said, it turns out this is a direct quote. Turns out that the happiest of all wives in America, you know, they're testing the wives because the assumption is that. Any sort of male headship or authority is oppressive, tyrannical, patriarchal. So the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. So I was shocked that the New York, New York Times would, would print mm-hmm. that. <laughs> um, and and then he turns to his um Brad Wilcox turns to his fellow academics, you know, because that's his those are his peers. Right. 
And he says to them, uh, this is my favorite line. Academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and about evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. So the bottom line is that Christianity or that Christians have a practical answer to reconciling the sexes, to use my subtitle, that stood up to rigorous empirical testing. And, and we don't even know this. <laughs> you know, um, this is, we need to get the word out uh, to encourage Christian men because, you know, they're feeling the same denigration from the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Mm. So, so many, many Christian men are st- also feeling this sort of, you know, the the gen- gen- general attack on masculinity. So I, I, I would love to see us be able to show that the the secular media is wrong about Christian mm-hmm. men and we can show it with empirical data. Well, you've, and, I, oh, and while we're at it, I, I wanted to respond to the other part of your question because you brought up the international side of it. And I love that um, because even though I focus mostly on the U.S., I do have a section on uh, studies around the globe at which you have a global audience. So, um, so I had three studies that I cite. One of them was by an anthropologist who just went to Colombia. So it's a smaller study, but so she starts out as a Marxist. She expects to find that evangelicals are patriarchal and controlling. Mm-hmm. And she found the exact opposite. She was amazed. She said that the machismo culture in Latin America encourages men to, you know, be out in the public realm where you're drinking and smoking and gambling and visiting prostitutes. And she said, when a man becomes an evangelical, he stops all of that and directs his money to his family instead. His family experiences a higher standard of living and they all, they all do better. She calls, she says evangelicalism is the best women's movement in terms of the impact it has in, in the third world, in the developing world. And then there was a much larger study done by a uh, sociologist at the University of London. So she went to Africa and Asia, included that as well. And she found the same thing. She calls it the evangelical gender paradox because it's exactly the opposite of what critics expect. And she said, the church, let me give you a few of her words. The church helps men put the needs of the household above their own pleasure. Uh, And she concludes that Christianity has done more to improve the lives of poor women around the globe than Western aid societies have and that Western feminism has. And she too says, it's it's fascinating. She uses a similar language saying, this is the best women's movement in, in, in the developing countries. It's just, and then she puts it this way. She says, you know, it's this unsophisticated, backward <laughs> uh, form of Christianity that's actually helping women the best. And then the third person I quote, you may have seen this because it's a best-selling book. It's called Half the Sky. It's by uh, a New York Times columnist, <laughs> Nicholas Kristof. Mm. You cited that in the book several times. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because 
he was willing, although I think himself is a very secular person, uh, he went to different countries around the world and said, again, that it's the evangelical church that is helping women more than any other institution. He, he says the church, the evangelical church, applies community pressure to bring wayward, uh, wayward husbands back into line. It discourages alcoholism and adultery. And it mm -hmm. says those are two things that have caused enormous suffering to women in these countries. And so it's fascinating that, uh, as far as I know, none of these anthropologists or writers were, were Christian. And all of them said, you know, we're seeing the same, the same thing that the sociologists are seeing here in the U.S. They're seeing the same impact of evangelicalism around the world, that it does reconnect men to their family and make them responsible in ways that they, you know, that, that the surrounding culture doesn't necessarily expect them to be. I've seen the sun rise from mountaintops Slept on the wrong side of tabletops I've climbed up trees that don't seem to stop But it's home where my heart belongs And it's the same as it's always been Yeah, these road keepers traveling They're like rivers and wide and deep Who flow from land out into the sea Drawn home Well, this is something that is so contrary to the popular secular narrative, as you've already alluded to. And we've had other guests on the scope, Glenn Scribner, who wrote the book, The Air We Breathe. And he was looking at the positive contributions of Christianity to Western culture. And a friend of ours that we have in common, Vishal Mangalwadi, in his book, where he talks about how, how the, the Bible shaped our civilization to the very foundation. So what you see across the board is that Christianity has a positive effect for all of the negative that have been out there, which seem to be more the exception than the rule. However, as you've noted, it's not just the, I mean, it's the conservative, really Bible believers that were by far and away have a higher satisfaction when it comes to marriage, family. Now, again, we always know that there are those who have done, done it wrong and there's not everyone is a perfect person and there's been abuse, but really the ones who have been the most guilty of this, you noted, are the nominal Christians. Those who go maybe to church once in a while, they have the rhetoric but not the substance. And I thought that was a very important, the way that you you separated those two. Elaborate on that for us so that we can help people understand who really is, is perpetrating this idea of toxic masculinity in our culture today. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, that I think that's one of the most interesting findings as well. Because we all, one reason we don't know how, how well Christians are doing is because we all have heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as the rest of the culture. And in my research, I found that that's one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. Well, it's not true. But what happened is, is the, the sociologists went back to the data. And like you said, they, they uh, divided out men who are truly authentically Christian and attend church regularly versus nominal Christians. Uh, by the way, I have to explain to my students, they don't know what nominal means. It means in name only. <laughs> N-O-M means name in Latin. Um, and these are men who, in a survey like this, might check the Baptist box, but who, in fact, go to church rarely, if at all. And they test out shockingly differently 
So they test out their, their wives report the lowest level of happiness with the way their husbands treat them. They are the least engaged with their children. They have the highest level of divorce, higher than secular men. And the real shocker, they have the highest rate of domestic violence, higher than secular men. And so this is what skews the statistics because they are out there claiming an evangelical identity. And many studies will put these two groups together, right? They'll just say, oh, well, let's study evangelicals. And so you get, on the one hand, men who are much better than the secular world, and then you have men who are worse than the secular world. So if you put them together, obviously, the statistics are going to be skewed. Um, uh, to quote my, my go-to sociologist again, Brad Wilcox, who wrote an article on it for Christianity Today. And he said, the most violent husbands in America are nominal Christians who attend church rarely, if at all. And so... Mm-hmm. And, and people ask me, well, why do you think they're actually worse than secular men, though? And it appears to be that they pick up the language of headship and submission, but they infuse secular meanings. Now, secular meanings mm-hmm. of entitlement and dominance and control and so on. But they're all actually worse than secular men because then they feel they have religious sanction for mm-hmm. it. Uh, so I'm very careful to say it's not because of scripture. It's clearly not mm-hmm. um, because m- many people will say, well, it's a, it's the scripture. It's a scriptural teaching that causes men to be, you know, heartless patriarchs. No, it's the men who are not following scripture who will pick up a few phrases and then infuse mm-hmm. secular meaning into it. So the important thing for us as Christians is to, to ask, well, what is the secular meaning that, you know, this is why I, I wrote the book too, is you need to, ha- t- you need to have a critical grid. Uh, of what secularism says about masculinity so that you don't absorb it unawares. And so so I, mm. I agree with you. One of the most striking things to come out of the sociological, sociological literature is to help explain you know, that there's very, very committed Christian men and then there's nominals. And in America, there's a lot of nominals. There's a lot of cultural Christians. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I, I used to think that, I used to think they were a small group because, you know, you and I probably hang out mostly with committed Christian yes, people. Yes. And then I read at least one study said, no, no, they're about the same size. You know, so you, you have a 50 50 chance that the person you meet who claims to be evangelical may be just a nominal. And that, that's an important thing for churches to know because these men are hanging around the fringes of the Christian church. So how do we minister to them? How do we reach out to them? How do we help them to see that what they're doing is, uh, uh, you know, is, is destructive and, they they sh- they cannot claim that label while living like a secular person. Which is what we find. I mean, we as you mentioned and you alluded to, having been a pastor for over twenty years and seeing those situations of abuse that did happen, but most of the time, the abuse that I that did occur were those people that would master the language, but you could tell the substance wasn't there, and you you could just sense it. But it's it's a lot more incipient because you can hard you can hide behind flowering language. But with the church too, with me too, you're starting to see much more people becoming more open about abuse, which is a good thing so that we can address it so that we can forsake it because that's not what scripture calls us to. As I alluded to once in a sermon in talking about Ephesians chapter five, and you mentioned that in the book where you have someone saying Christ loved the church that he would give himself for her. And I remember saying to a group of men, Jesus didn't beat his church. 
He didn't beat his church, but yet you see people that have, or you've heard instances of that occurring. One of the things that I also found very interesting about your book is you were showing the progression in the industrial revolution. You go back to colonial times, seeing how families have been together, seeing how the husbands have been removed. They're working apart in the public arena that fact value split, as you mentioned in the book. And I, I really appreciated. But one of the things that I thought you articulated that I hadn't thought of was how the stories began to represent men as bad. And that became what was really taught. And I kept thinking of that phrase, you know, words make worlds. The stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, and we can see this in movies and in film, we have a tendency to emulate. What did you discover? Or a better yet, a better question is, how did you even think to go into these novels? You mentioned Nathaniel Hawthorne. You mentioned you mentioned Washington Irving. You you were bringing out these stories of how our understanding of masculinity has been shaped by these American authors. What made you go in that direction to help understand this idea of masculinity? Well, you have probably noticed that um, most of my most of my books have mostly secular sources. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You did. I noticed that. I go out, and you have a lot of them. A very pl- You have a wide variety of secular sources in there. I thought it was very yeah, it's, interesting. It's the most data-driven book that I've written, by the way, you know, because you have the sociological data that we just talked about. And then we have all this historical data. Right now, there are uh, libraries full of books on the history of women because of feminism. I found about three books on the history of men. <laughs> so, you know, this, this, it, it was only a couple of books out there. Um, they were very good. And then you'll have a couple of books like on the history of fatherhood and so on, most isolated topics. Um, but this information is out there. It's just that Christians aren't reading these books. And that's another reason I wrote the book is to bring this information to the Christian world. Uh, uh, let, let me, hmm, I, I go through several stages in the secular definition of masculinity and I, I, let me point, pinpoint just one of them because it's so uh, influential. And that was the rise of Darwinism, you know, Darwinian evolution. Yes, social Darwinism, right? Yeah, you mentioned social that. Darwinism, basically, they said the, the, the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival would be the men who were tough, egotistical, brutal, predatory, savage, barbarian. You know? And so these are our ancestors, uh, you know, of our modern men. Uh, and therefore, this is our true nature is was was what the message was that you know, the beast within is your true self. And all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our animal impulses should be controlled by the higher faculties of mm-hmm. spirit and moral will. And now that was flipped and people began to say, no, no, your animal nature is your true nature. And it's covered by a thin veneer of civilization. That was one of their favorite phrases. It's just a thin veneer, you know, and, and the, the true self is the uncivilized barbarian within. And this had an incredible impact, very negative impact, as you can imagine, on the secular definition, therefore, of manhood, that, you know, this is our true nature. And, and, and you ask, well, how did women get along with such brutal men? Mm-hmm. And uh, their answer was, uh, this is Herbert Spencer, who was the um, major popularizer of Darwinism here in America. Spencer answers and says, well, women had to develop the ability to please. And then he added, it would also help if they learned how to hide their displeasure 
as such bad treatment. So this was the message of evolution. Uh, and then Darwin himself explicitly argued that women were inferior, you know, mentally and socially and intellectually. Uh, and he said, um, he acknowledged that women were more sensitive, intuitive. But then he said, those are, those are the traits of the lower species. So even women's positive traits were signs of their inferiority. Uh, and then Thomas Huxley, who was, you know, Darwin's bulldog, quote unquote, you know, he had that, that moniker argued that because women's inferiority is a product of natural selection, there's no way to overcome it even with educational selection. In other words, we can't educate her to a higher level. So the impact of Darwinism was a, was a huge part of developing a, a very negative specular script for masculinity. Which is what you, you show in these different novels that had been written where they grab a hold of that social Darwinianism or Darwinism. And then they start articulating that in the stories where they make these men to be going off into their animalistic nature. And one of the things that I thought was very fascinating, because now we have the the book, you know, Jesus and John Wayne, right? This is idea that's gone on in American culture. I know other people have talked about it. People have told me about the book. And then you have this, you, you actually draw out the idea of the Western, which I thought was very interesting, where you get into the history of the, the modern Western or the Western novel at that time and the image that it was conveying and the story that it was telling to young men on what it meant to be a man but that was really this Darwinian idea, these loners that are going it on their own. Why did you want to include that in in the in your book so that people could get this idea of how masculinity has been shaped? Well, first of all, because it's a fact. I'm being factual. Hmm. This is what happened. But I'll add some um, uh, some more background. In the 19th century, uh, because of the secular secularization of the public square, men's behavior was actually growing worse. I mean, they're not feeling as bound by Christian ethics. And so the 19th century saw a huge increase in drinking, gambling, smoking, uh, prostitution, the number of brothels mushroomed. And uh, sometimes it's easy to remember with a specific fact. So here's your fact. 18 in 1830, Americans drank three times as much as they do today. You said that was the highest time of alcoholism in American culture in 1830. I, I'd never heard that stat before. So I was surprised. I went, really? That's the highest? It's not people leaving Bud Light now? I mean, is that what we're at? And so there was a reason for all the reform movements of the 19th century, you know, like the like the temperance movement. You know, men, men were drinking away the family money, leaving their leaving their family destitute. You know, they were coming home and beating their wives because they were drunk. You know, public drunkenness, you know, people just falling down drunk in the streets was was becoming a problem. And so there was a huge uh, reform movement. And by the way, it was especially young men. Uh, they were coming in from the countryside to get jobs in the city. And so they were being separated from their traditional structures of authority, like their family, their church, their village. And they were much more prone to fall to, to fall prey to the vices you know, in the city. The reform movements, however, were driven largely by women because they were attacking what were primarily traditionally male vices, drinking, gambling, uh, prostitutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the 19th century, the, uh, 
what was also happening, of course, is as the, as the secular realm said, you know, we need to be excuse me, as a public realm said, we need to be secular and value free. Well, who then is in charge of values? Well, you, you relegate those to the private realm. And who's in charge of them then? Well, women are because women are still in the private realm at the time. Uh, and so for the first time ever in human history, women were said, were said to be more moral, morally and spiritually superior to men. This was completely new. All the way back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, people had thought that men were more moral. They had argued that the insight into right and wrong is a rational insight, and they thought men were more rational, and therefore men are more moral. They are stronger in keeping their, you know, evil impulses under control. And so this was completely new that in the 19th century, people began to say that women were morally superior. And one way that they expressed that was by saying, well, in that case, we need to bring our moral superior view into the public realm. And so they drove a lot of these reform movements. Well, by the end of the 19th century, men began to rebel because that was very demeaning to men. To say that men were just naturally more prone to, to sin and vice, especially in area, areas like sex and alcohol. And by the way, I, I just in, was interviewed a few days ago by a young man in his 20s. And he said, it's in the church today. He said, he said, it's just assumed that men are going to have more trouble with sex and porn and, and, and addiction and so on. And, and that it's up to women, it's up to their wives, you know, to hold them in check. So apparently, at least in some circles, it's still much, much the same attitude. But at any rate, it, you asked about the, the novels. So in the late 19th century, men began to say, we're tired of women telling us that we're the bad guys, you know, that we're the villains in society. And so there was a, a new, a new term was coined. It was over civilization. People said, you know, men are now no, no longer becoming, you know, they're no longer the, the hardy, boys working on the farm, you know, they're, work, they're, they're city boys, they're soft, they're effeminate. We need to create men again. And so that's where those novels came in. They said, okay, we need to get away from women because they're the moralists, you know, they're the moralists of society, away from women, away from civilization, out into the wild, climbing mountains and hunting elk. And the, the novels of the time all uh, featured men who are outdoors men, mountain men, scouts, uh, and, and so on. Uh, I mean, think of, oh, Melville, for example. They're, he set all of his novels at sea. And you know why? He said, because the sea is where men face the utmost license. That's his phrase, the utmost moral license. And, um, and the idea that we have to, you know, one one literary critic put it this way, the protagonist of American fiction is the man on the run. He's on the run away from civilization, away from women, out into the wilderness, because he's decided that he tries his, finds his true nature out, out in the wild. So this was one more stage in the secularization of the uh, concept of masculinity, because instead of saying, no, men find their true nature being deeply embedded in their family, <laughs> it said, they got to get away. You know, they need to get out into the wild. And so I, I come back again and again in the book to the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is Genesis, where God creates 
human beings. And he says, here's your job description. <laughs> here's, here's why I made you. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. And in the very streamlined language of Genesis 1 that could be unpacked, you know, be fruitful and multiply is not just the family, but also all of the social institutions that historically grow out of the family. You know, the clan, the tribe, the village, the, the nation, and also social institutions like the school, the government, the, the marketplace. And so it means develop all of these social institutions. Subdue the earth means harness the natural resources. So it's not just farming, but mining and building, you know, making bridges, building buildings, inventing computers, uh, composing music. One of my students said, oh, come on, composing music. <laughs> How is that part of the cultural mandate? And I play the violin. So I said, what's the violin made out of? Well, wood. What's the bow made out of? Of course, here. So all the transcendent beauty you associate with music starts with harnessing the raw materials of nature. And so instead of getting away from civilization, I keep coming back to that with, uh, you know, the biblical, biblical view of masculinity is that you roll up your sleeves and you invest more deeply in your family and in the social institutions that grow out of it. You invest more deeply in your in, in doing productive work that is useful to your society, that is creative and productive. Um, and that's where you find your meaning because that's pre-fall. That's what that's the commission God gave us pre-fall. And that's where our understanding of of masculinity should really be rooted. Nancy always impresses me when I talk to her. She is one of the sharpest minds I know. She's not afraid of diving into the data. She's always seeking truth, and she knows the truth is more than just simple statistics and stories. Nancy shows that social forces were and are at work that shape our view of what it means to be a man and how it is lived out in the world. How changes in society because of the Industrial Revolution had unintended and often overlooked consequences. We regularly talk about engaging the culture on our show. And we don't mean let's join the culture war, no. We mean that in order to have an actual effect on culture, in order to be Christians who pursue Christ's mission in our culture, we first have to understand it. Honestly, it's easy to point out places where society is off base. It's not always as easy to understand why or what drives it to act as if it does. If we don't have a good handle on what's going on below the surface, well, we won't be able to offer actual solutions that are believable and draw people to Christ. I was struck by the data from our secular social scientists about Christian men, especially evangelical Christian men. Did that stick out to you? I mean, it did to me. I was actually struck by how it wasn't the secular men who were the worst, but those who were the nominally Christian. Those who know the language, who can pass themselves off as the good Christian man, but aren't the real deal. They are the worst offenders. And it's a sober reminder that there are wolves in sheep's clothing, as Paul says. Daniel Strange talked about Christianity's subversive fulfillment of the desires we have. I can't help but think that in the biblical understanding of masculinity, we find exactly that. I was struck by how Nancy's research lined up with what we heard from Malcolm Geit and Karen Swallow Pryor about the importance of imagination. 
It's in the novels of the 19th century that we can see a turn toward the truly toxic masculinity. But what was it that Christopher Watkin told us? We can out-narrate the secular story. Next time, we're going to continue our conversation. Look at what it means to be a man. And what about the manosphere? And what was the biggest surprise for Nancy? The differences between men and women, dealing with abuse, and more. What was it that stuck out to you? We want to hear from you. Please connect with us via Instagram, YouTube, or our Facebook pages. We want to hear from you, and we will respond because we want to hear what you're thinking. Did it help you? Does it not? And what can we do to help you so that you can water your world better? Be sure to check out this conversation and more on our YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Until then, stay watered, everybody. And no